you can go ahead and turn to, to Matthew 21. And we're going to finish up this chapter today, Lord willing. And uh, we'll do that by seeing a couple of parables of Jesus here in this portion of his teaching. Matthew 21, and we're going to begin this morning in verse 28 and read through the end of the chapter. I'd encourage you to turn there so you can follow along. Uh, lots to see here in the text this morning, and we'll try to do it in a an efficient manner, but it's helpful if we can all look at it together. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 28, we'll begin reading. What do you think, Jesus said? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Well, they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to go get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Well, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to him, to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much in your two parables here. And uh, Lord, I, I know we'll only be able to scratch the surface, but I pray that even just that scratch of the surface of this your word would dig down deep in our hearts. Uh, as we attempt to study, Lord, we're very aware that we need you. This is your word, and it's, it's spiritually understood, so we need your Holy Spirit to give us discernment, and we also need your help to obey where we're called upon to do that and to rejoice 
where we're called upon to do that and to mourn when we're called upon to do that. Lord, all of these things are here. And uh, Lord, yet it is wonderful because it is from you. So give us your aid now. And would we change because of this? In Jesus, your name we pray this. Amen. Well, we ended last week, if you remember, with a, a scene where the chief priests and elders there in the temple, they, they came to Jesus and they challenged him on his authority. They said, who gives you the authority to do these things? And they were referring to his, his miracles and his teaching and all the, the ruckus that he had caused. You, you remember the cleansing of the temple and the healing of the lame and the blind and, and then the little children who, who had sort of a chorus and they were saying, uh, Hosanna to the son of David. And it caused quite a stir. Well, right off of that with these leaders still in Jesus' audience, the story goes right into the text that we just read. And and really, the next couple chapters, it's it's hard to even find a good starting and stopping point because it all runs together in rapid succession. Um, you have to keep in mind that the first 20 chapters of Matthew covered really about three years, but really about 33 years from Jesus' birth onward. And this last quarter covers only mostly a week. So we're seeing things play out rapidly. But even though it's moving quicker, there's still a pattern that we've seen all throughout Matthew. And as Matthew wrote by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, this gospel record, he gives to us these patterns of of a a season of miracles or or a, a narrative of Jesus' ministry and then follows those with teaching. And we've seen that in several big sections But now we see it here sort of one after the other. And that's what we have because we saw Jesus ride in to Jerusalem on the donkey. We saw him enter the temple and cleanse it. We saw him heal the lame and the blind. We saw the little children. We saw him curse the fig tree. And we saw this little interaction with the the chief priests and the elders. And now he goes into a section of teaching, which is what we just read, at least the beginning of it. And we're going to start with just these two parables. There's another one to follow in chapter 22. But these two parables go together. They're nearly identical in their purpose. And the parables are about God's vineyard. They're, They're about God's people. That's the image there. And in each case, there are workers. And there's a lot of themes that we'll see. And I'll mention a few of them. You'll probably pick up on even more. But We see the theme of God's care for his people, the vine. We see God's value of repentance over just empty profession. We see the the concept of stewardship and, and God using his agents in creation. We see a theme of of rejecting authority and rejecting God's son. We see the kingdom of God, and then we see a theme of judgment as well. And as Jesus is coming face to face with with the leaders of Israel's religion here, these parables are very pointed and they are directed at them. But I would say from the onset here, we, we need to take heed not to say, well, these hard lessons were just for those chief priests, those elders, those Pharisees and scribes, etc. It's not really relevant to us. It's good to know, but it's not for us. But we need to pay attention because... The, the very same pitfalls that we see these leaders falling into, and even the, the depths of unbelief and rejection, 
is something that all of humanity is prone to. And in small ways, it's something that even believers are prone to as we sort of ebb and flow in our walk. So these parables are at once major warnings, but they're also encouragement to us who follow Jesus. If you're looking at the outline in the bulletin there, you'll see sort of the big idea here is that these two vineyard parables show the importance of repentance and doing God's will. Now, that's very simplified. Uh, We'll see a lot more to it, but that's kind of the main idea. So let's dive right in then. The first parable is a parable of a father and his sons. And as we read there in verse 28, Jesus starts off with an invitation to think. He says, what do you think? He's asking these leaders to, to seriously consider their position, to seriously consider their questions. Now, this is helpful because it's a reminder that that spiritual things are not mindless. Uh, Life of a spiritual nature is not just meditation and and emptying ourselves and hoping to be filled. It requires the mind that God created and gave to us to be exercised. And Jesus invites these men and, and us, by implication, to think about two sons. Even there, we see that there's going to be a comparison. And the comparison is is this family vineyard. The father, the patriarch, is no doubt the owner of this vineyard, and he makes a simple and reasonable request to his sons. He says to the first one, go and work in the vineyard today. Now, it would be expected culturally, but even practically, that the son would obey. It was in everyone's best interest for the son to obey his father. It was in everyone's best interest for the vineyard to be tended well. If it's a family business, then then the livelihood of everyone banks on the benefits of cooperating there. And we can see here already the weight of what is happening. God has created a world, a vineyard in big terms, so to speak. And he commands his children to, to work within it. And it's not just busy work, it's it's productive work, it's kingdom work. It's a simple and reasonable request. But in verse 29, we see that first son says, I will not. Blatantly, he just says, no, I, I will not. Literally, if a little bit less poetic way, it means I do not desire to do this. No, we have to give him credit for honesty. He didn't want to do it. And he told his dad, I don't want to. Not going to. I don't want to. His honesty, though, was dishonorable, of course. It was was shameful, especially in in an honor-shame culture where respect of parents was, was everything. And his response would have put him in jeopardy. He may have been thrown out of the family for something like this. He he was honest but he was honest in his rebellion. But Jesus says that after a little while, he changed his mind. He was sorry. He was, he was regretful. And he, he didn't just feel that regret. He, he actually did something about it. He went. He repented. Now, this is a lot like the parable of the prodigal son, isn't it? Only in really short form. We see here a concept of of repentance from open rebellion. 
the struggle of, of the human will having to be overcome and changed. Well, the second son, though, things went differently. Now, the language was the same. The, Jesus said that the father went to the other son and said the same. Or in other words, it was the exact same thing. Nothing different about the process. The concept and the context was the same. It was still one of his sons. And this time, the son answered respectfully. He, he said, indeed, Lord, I will go. A very honorable response, and it was the response that would be expected of any good son. Of course, I'll go work in our family vineyard. And he knew this. He, he knew just what to say. But the difference here is that the respectful answer was only verbal, and there was no follow-through. He simply did not go. He had good words with no action behind them. And it reminds us of just a few paragraphs earlier of a fig tree with leaves but no fruit. Now, that is the simple parable, the first one. And it, it's, it's easy to wrap our minds around that story. It's a, it's a short little story. Now, with both of these parables, though, we have a really helpful thing because in both of them, Jesus asks his audience a question, and the answer to the question is really all the interpretation that we need. We see the question he asks in the beginning of verse 31 to his audience is this, which of the two did the will of the father? Now they answered and they answered correctly. It was a simple question to a simple parable and a simple answer. Any, anybody in their right mind would say, well, well, the first son, he's the one who actually did the will of the father. Even though he said at first, no, it's, it's not my desire. I don't want to go, but he repented. He, he changed his mind and he went. And the, the chief priests here and the elders, they answer correctly, but their correct answer was an answer that, that put them immediately in their place within this story because they were in this story. They didn't know it just yet, but they were there. And in fact, we could say in a broad sense that all of us are in this story to some degree. We may not know it, but Jesus knows it. And he knows exactly where we are. And with these, he helps them out. He goes right from their answer into, into application. And he brings them into it. He says, truly, the middle of verse 31. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, we've seen this, this kind of phrase before, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, tax collectors and sinners. It was, it was a, a, a way of speaking to speak of those who were viewed as the lowest in the society of Israel, the lowest of the society in the Jewish culture. They were sinners. <laughs> they were clearly unrighteous. I don't have to explain the prostitutes. The tax collectors, though, of course, were known for their sort of not just partnership with the Roman government, but also their extortion. They, they took money that, that wasn't theirs. It's interesting, though, that, that Matthew, as he writes this, puts himself in that story, doesn't he? Because he was a tax collector before he met the Lord. And at first, 
in the parable, these tax collectors and sinners, they say no, no to God's ways. They go on in rebellion. But that rebellion changes when something happens. They repent. They have a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change in their life. And they go, not literally into the vineyard, but Jesus says they go into the kingdom of God. The lowest people in society go into the the brightest kingdom before the elite leaders. By repentance, these people of the earth, at first, who were rebellious, but now they're the first to go into the kingdom. They become citizens of the true kingdom. Now, they are the first son, the son who first said no, but then repented. But, but the religious leaders, however, in this story are left behind. They are the second son. These chief priests and elders and Pharisee, many of the Pharisees and scribes, They are the second son, the second son who puts on a good face and puts on a good act and knows the right things to say in public. But when the rubber meets the road, they do not do the will of the father. Now, Jesus ties their rejection in verse 32 back to the ministry of John the Baptist, who came preaching repentance for the kingdom is at hand. And he came preaching that there is one greater than me coming. Remember one, he said, whose whose shoes I'm not even worthy to untie. He was talking about Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Messiah. And Jesus says to them, these tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, they heard John's message and they listened. They believed. And that's the difference. Because he said, you heard him. And even when you saw the wonderful change in these people's lives, you still did not believe him. Even when they saw the lowest of the low, radically changed by this new message, by this new covenant, by Jesus, ultimately, they stayed stubborn in their unbelief, in their hardness, and they would not go in. Jesus ends this this section by saying, you did not change your minds. And it goes right back to how he started it because he started by asking them to think. He asked them to use their minds, but their minds were made up. They were no longer really thinking or taking into consideration all the truth. They, They were just acting sort of inside a rut, a channel which which kept them from going along with Jesus. It, it, there were many reasons involved. Fear of Rome. They wanted to keep a good standing with, with Roman government. Fear of losing their power. Fear of, of losing their status or class. Maybe it's a lot of just rugged traditionalism, but their minds were shut off. Their hearts were hardened. They would not listen. Now, before we go on, think about this, because somewhere in this parable, 
Although it was not first spoken to us, it is now for our edification. And somewhere in this parable are we. And Jesus is showing that it is better to be a repentant, ragged sinner than a squeaky clean religious person who's bright and shiny on the outside, but stone cold and hard on the inside. The lowest of the low, that's probably us in our day, might hear the gospel of Christ and be changed. And that person is better off in the lifetime of the kingdom of God than a churchgoer who always has been in church, has always made a claim of religion, but went with the motions, but never answered the call of Christ to actually repent and follow him. We sang in the hymn, Savior like a shepherd lead us. One of the verses, I think the third verse, one of the one of the calls was early may we seek thy face. And we have to say that yes, it is better if early in life we can truly come to know the Lord and follow him. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, it's better for a person with a lifetime of debauchery to actually come to know the Lord than for one who on the outside looks perfect to never believe and never repent. We go on, though. There's another parable, and it's similar, but it's different. The first parable was a call to think, uh, to consider their position and see if they were truly working in God's vineyard. Were they obeying the Father? But this parable, beginning in verse 33, then becomes a warning because Jesus simply says, listen to another parable. In this one, again, we see a master of a house, and he's not dealing this time with his family, but he's dealing with renters, with tenants. And that was a pretty common thing where a wealthy person would have enough money to buy the land and establish a vineyard, but then he would lease it out to workers so he could go on and, and do other things. The workers would pay a, a fair share of, of rent, and they would they would work the ground, they would dress the vines, they would harvest the grapes, and they would get much of the, the profit from that, but they would have to share the harvest with the master and pay the lease. Well, this master, we read, planted a vineyard in verse 33. He went to great lengths to care for it. He he set it up for success. He he put a fence around it to protect it. He he dug a wine press to prepare it for its full use. He built a tower to, to ensure it would be watched and, and secure, and he leased it to tenants. He made sure there would be people to work in it and produce fruit. Now, these audience of Jesus, if they knew their scripture, their minds might have gone back to Isaiah 5 because Isaiah uses the same language there to refer to Israel as a vineyard that God planted. Listen to this. It's a, it's a beautiful poem. Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. Isaiah there is speaking of, of Israel as God's vineyard. God is the master who, who planted it. He's the one who 
who created the first people, but then ultimately he called Abraham out of his country and, and said, I'm going to give you a land. You're going to increase. All the nations will be blessed by you. It's going to be a wonderful thing, Abraham. And he put his people there as tenants to keep the land. If in Israel then is the vineyard, then the servants that God sent, as we read on, we'll find that they are the prophets. The tenants are the people, and maybe more specifically, the leaders who have who have charge over and influence over the people. The son, of course, we'll see, is Jesus himself. Verse 34 goes on and says that in this parable, the, the season for fruit came near, and he sent his servants to collect his share of the fruit. We've seen this so many times in Matthew and all throughout Scripture. God expects fruit. He's looking for fruit from his people. Just like Jesus cursed that fig tree when there was leaves but no fruit, in the same way God's people are expected, they are meant to produce the fruits of of righteousness and peace that fill the earth that God created. It's it's no wonder that David said when he wrote Psalm 1 in verse 3 that the, the blessed man is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in season. That's the way God intends it to work, for his people to produce his righteous fruits. But there's something culturally here we need to understand, because in the laws governing leasing vineyards in that day, the owner had to maintain his his claim on the vineyard. If he failed to make a claim on it for more than three years, then the people who were renting it could legally take possession of it on that fourth year. So in this case, in the parable, the owner of the vineyard, is he's making his interest in the fruit known. He, he sends his servant after that first harvest to collect on his investment. And God places his people in the world to work it and to till it. But we have to remember that it is, it's his world. He, he has a rightful claim to expect fruit and to receive the glory from that fruit being produced. And even when we are producing the righteous fruit of holiness, we should never boast in it as if we were doing it all by ourselves. Now, we make real decisions and we use our gifts that God gives us, but we're always accountable to the master. Without him, we would have neither the world or the gifts or the life in which to use those gifts. But in this case, Jesus says he sent his servants in to collect on his fruit. And the tenants vehemently rejected these servants. They, they beat and killed and stoned them. In real life, that would have meant that these servants were rejecting the claim of the master. They were trying to stake their own claim and autonomy in that vineyard. And the idea here is that Israel is rejecting God's servants, who were at first the prophets. It's akin to them saying, no, this is our world. We're going to do with it what we please. To reject God's, God's message is to reject God himself. It's to rebel against him. It's to state our own sufficiency as if we own the world. 
The tenants had quickly forgotten that without the master, they would have no vineyard to work. No vineyard means no grapes, no harvest, no living. How quickly do they and do we bite the hand that feeds us? The idea of, of Israel and the history of Israel rejecting the prophets is found in several places in the Old Testament. I want to point out a few, though, because I think Jesus may have been thinking of these instances. Jeremiah 20, verse 1 and 2, tells of when Pasher, the priest, the son of Immer, who is chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. And listen, then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. Another one in 1 Kings, or during the time of Jezebel, when Jezebel, 1 Kings 18, verse 4, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that means she killed them, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in the cave and fed them. Pasher beat Jeremiah, Jezebel killed the prophets, and another one, 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20 and 21 the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so you cannot prosper? You've forsaken the Lord, and he's forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Uh, those are just a few examples, but it's just what Jesus said. They beat one. They killed others, and they stoned another one. Jesus wasn't making this up. He wasn't exaggerating to make a big point. No, he's, he's saying that this has been a pattern of rebellion that has been circling back for hundreds of years. And he's going to pick up this theme in chapter 23 when he, he speaks out against Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. But Jesus goes on in this parable, and he, he, he takes a big step because the master sent the first servants, and they beat them and killed them and stoned them. And he sent more servants, but they did the same to them. And finally, in verse 37, he said he sends his son, and he says, surely they will respect my son. Now, we have to pause here for a minute and read a little bit in between the lines. And I don't think we're stretching anything. Because an incredible detail of this story is that this master even gives these wicked tenants one more chance. Any reasonable businessman would have, would have struck them out and charged them with murder after the first incident. But not just once. Twice more, this master shows patience and gives a chance for these tenants to, to repent, to act righteously. And this, does it not display to us the immense compassion that God has both toward his sworn enemies and also his people who rebel against him? He gives chance and chance again. For them to repent, to turn to him. God is not businesslike in dealing with his people. He's gracious 
and slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And his mercy is most clearly displayed. His benevolent, most vivid display of kindness is declared when he sends his son. And that's what happens in this parable. Finally, he sends his son and says, surely they will respect my son. Think of, think of this, Hebrews 1. It starts out like this. Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. That's the exact same framework of this parable. God sent his servants and spoke by the prophets, but the final word is Jesus. Now, surely the son of the master would be accepted, and and surely the son of God would be accepted by his own people. But we read in verse 38, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. You see Hebrews Chapter one, even there, the heir of all things. They see him and they say, let's kill him. Let's kill him. Now, I know we're moving through a lot of sort of corridors that are parallel. We're talking about the parable. We're talking about its interpretation. And we also are talking about culturally what what would have been in their minds. And if we follow the parable by way of culture, this third visit, probably in the third harvest, would have been the last year in their minds that the master could have claimed property for his own. And doing away with this final messenger would mean it would be theirs. So they took him and they threw him out and they killed him. A total rejection. How gracious had the master been? How wonderful was the vineyard that he planted? How well prepared was it? How wonderful of him to offer it out to the tenants, to give them charge over it, to keep it. But they had altogether staked their claim. They had rejected their master by ultimately rejecting his son. And in the same way, Israel's leaders and and many of the people were finally rejecting God by rejecting his son. To reject the son is to reject God. You cannot have the father without the son. And you cannot go around the son to get to the father. Which is why Jesus said, I believe in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Now here's the heart-wrenching thing, is that in their rebellion and unbelief, the leaders of Israel probably thought they were preserving their religion, preserving their their Jewishness by rejecting this radical Jesus. But what they were actually doing was rejecting God himself. They held on to the teachings and traditions, but once the Messiah is rejected, there's no life left in the system at all. There's no substance in reality, just the shell And we can't help but think that while Jesus was telling this very parable, some of the men within his audience were planning his death. 
They were planning to throw him out and kill him. Jesus was teaching that his ministry, his sonship, his 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 deity was was ultimate. And before we even move on, we have to ask, do you reject God's son? In the final analysis, that's what matters. All righteousness and peace and joy, all goodness flows from him. Are we happy with a shell? A shell of religion or a shell of morality or a shell of of what appears to be peace without the fullness in the life. It only comes through Christ. We must go on. Just like the first parable in verse 40, we see that Jesus asks a question. And this one is, is so, so fitting. When the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? Now listen to the answer that the the listeners gave. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Now they gave him the correct answer. They, They gave him the moral answer. Interestingly, they gave him the answer of the second son, didn't they? Yes, Lord. This is the correct way. They could see the wicked injustice in the story, but they could not see themselves within the story. They could not perceive at this point that they were those wicked tenants. Now, this is just like the story of David. Think about this. David, remember the story? He saw Bathsheba bathing. She was fair to look at. He desired her. He sent for her and took her. They produced a child. In order to to cover all this up, he sent her husband out to the deepest part of battle for him to be killed. And he was confronted by one of God's servants, a prophet, Nathan. And Nathan came to him and he told him this, this parable about a poor family who had one little lamb. It was all they had. And a rich man who had many lambs, but he came and saw theirs, and he took it so he could have a nice feast. And David responded to that. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And what did Nathan say? He said, David, you are that man. How powerful is blindness to our own sin and rebellion? And just like David, these leaders were blinded to their own rejection of God through his son, and their own answer to the parable condemns them. But Jesus also lets the scripture condemn them because he quotes from Psalm 118, which verse 22 reads, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus gives this use of Psalm 118 here, and it's wonderful because it it not just answers the leaders and gives them a, a, a a rebuke, but it also establishes 
the way this psalm would be used in the rest of the New Testament. Think of this. In Acts 4, Peter was preaching, mostly to a Jewish crowd, and he said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who has become the cornerstone. Peter used it again when he wrote his first letter to the dispersed believers in that first century. And he says, it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There are others, but one more. The apostle Paul uses it in Ephesians 2 speaking to a mixed group of of Gentile and Jewish believers. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Peter affirms it in Acts in his sermon to the Jews. He uses it again to encourage the believers and show them that they have great hope in this cornerstone. And Paul applies it to the Gentiles who were grafted into this household of God, Christ being the very cornerstone of that household. Those who were far off had been brought near, just like the tax collectors and prostitutes who were entering the kingdom of God before these leaders in the same way. Believers throughout all the world, both Jew and Gentile, were going into the kingdom. In his patience, like the master of this story, God had preserved his people Israel up until this point as a a lampstand in the world, as the means by which God's glory was made known to all people. But now, before these very leaders, Jesus is saying that task is removed from you, and I'm going to give it to someone who will actually do it. Both Jew and Gentile, a a, a new people who will produce his fruit. That's what Jesus said. The kingdom of God is taken away from you and given to a people. But this people will not be identified just by lineage or, or family history, No, this people will be identified by blood, the blood of Christ, both Jew and Gentile. No distinction, no separation, no tears of importance. One new man in the place of two brought together in Christ as his true people, his holy nation, and his kingdom brought to life. Paul would say in Ephesians 2 again, he is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Listen, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Could read others. Matt read in the beginning or the middle of our service, Isaiah 8, which speaks of the, the stone of offense and the rock of stumbling. Jesus had become a stone of stumbling to these people and to much of Israel. But to those who believed, both Jew and Gentile, tax collectors and prostitutes, 
and and priests and Pharisees alike, those who believed, he was not a stumbling stone, but the cornerstone. We close by reading verses 45 and 46, because there's a realization here and a determination, because when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They do finally understand this, and they see that Jesus is pointing a finger at them, but it doesn't drive them to their knees in repentance. It pushes them further into their hardness. And they would avoid a scene here, it says, because they feared the people who followed Jesus. They were seeking to arrest him. But soon enough, they would fulfill this very parable. Not only would they take the son and kill him and throw him out, but also in very short history, they would be scattered. Their temple and their city would be destroyed. Devastation. But listen, here's the good news. The kingdom of God would grow and flourish and spread throughout the whole world when Christ makes this one new man by his blood. It wasn't over for God's people, and it isn't over. It was simply over for those who rejected the son. And again, the question is, do you reject Christ? We could ask that in a few ways. If you're a longtime believer, is your life's foundation built on this cornerstone of Christ? Or is it built on just religious tradition? In another way, if Christ is new to you, would you follow him? And if you are following him, would you give him the thanks and praise because you've had a change of heart like that first son who at once was rebellious and said, I don't want to do that. But you've been brought near and you've been made new and you're able to enter his kingdom. And if you are one of God's kingdom people, know that he has placed you in his vineyard to work and to produce fruit. It's his world. We're here by his grace for his glory. So may we produce the fruits of righteousness, the fruits of his spirit as we work by his grace and for him.